My name is Josh, I'm one of the pastors here. Great to see you all. I want to watch this video and uh, I want you to pay attention particularly to what is the word that you hear. Okay, let's go. You've taken the mouse over to the left screen and then click on the play button. That's how I got it before. There we go. Yeah. Hands up if you heard Laurel. Anyone hear Laurel? No. Really? I can only hear Laurel, but there's about five of us. One, two. Hands up if you heard Yanni. That is unbelievable. Really? I almost don't believe you. You know what? Okay, I wasn't going to say this, but this is apparent. No, it's the other way around. Anyway, I'll leave it. I'll leave it. Anyway, now I've got to say it now. Apparently, if you hear Yanni, it might mean that you hear things at higher frequency and have better hearing. So maybe it's just a sign of my poor hearing. Who knows? Um, it's incredible. Uh, I can only hear Laurel. My wife Zoe can only hear Yanni. It's fascinating. The, the exact same thing is being played unchanged, but it's possible to have a completely different experience. And I was hoping that we'd have more than five of us, but there is some of us out there. As we read Joel 3... Did you think to yourself, why is this here? Haven't we had this already? Uh, We've already seen judgment. We've already heard about the day of the Lord. We've already seen blessing. Isn't this just the same stuff on repeat? Why is it here? Why do we have Joel 3? The key significance of Joel 3 is we have the same thing on view, right? The day of the Lord. But now, in light of everything we've seen in Joel we get a different perspective. And this different perspective is more than just interesting information. It shows us the very heart of God and brings us comfort and hope. See, at the start of Joel, he wanted to move us to fear that would lead us to repentance. But now he aims to give us comfort that would lead to hope. At the start of Joel, he wanted to move us to fear that would lead to repentance But here in chapter 3, he wants to give us comfort that would lead to hope. Joel 3 shows us how to make sense of and live in this world. In fact, I think the different perspective of Joel 3 is so significant that you can't live properly as a Christian unless you get it. So it's wonderful that you're here this morning. Let's have a look. Point 1, God will restore his people. Have a look at verse 1. For behold... In those days and at that time, when I restored the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. In Joel chapter 1 and 2, we saw a bleak picture of what Israel's fortunes had become. If you can remember back, their, their lands had been destroyed. Their crops were gone. They had no animals to eat, nothing they could sacrifice to God and so be in relationship with him. There was a plague of locusts and an enemy destroying everything. And God said, there is worse to come. 
But here is a promise that there will be a time when God will restore the fortunes of his people. It's a beautiful word of comfort and of hope to his people who are bruised and battered and suffering. God will restore the fortunes of his people. God's Old Testament people looked forward to a time where they'd be restored in the near future. And it happened to a degree. But of course, the ultimate fulfillment where God will restore the fortunes of his people fully and finally is on the last day, on his day, the day of the Lord. And what will God do? How will he restore the fortunes of his people? Have a look at verse 2. Part A of how God will restore his people. Verse 2. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat and I will enter into judgment with them there. What? What's going on? The valley of Jehoshaphat, no one really knows where it is. It might not even be a real place. Jehoshaphat means judgment. God will gather people to the place where he will judge them. Now, we've heard this idea before in Joel, haven't we? God pronouncing his judgment, uh, but this time it's different, right? Back in Joel chapter 1 and 2, it was judgment on God's people. But here, he's gathering the nations for judgment. And before we saw that this judgment was meant to be terrifying to lead to repentance, but here, it's in the context of God telling his people how he's going to restore and reverse their fortunes. This time, it's a word of comfort. And of hope. How? How is God's judgment on the nations a comfort, a promise, a good promise of fortunes restored? How did you feel as we read about God's judgment, as Nico read it? Potentially not comfort, I imagine. And it seems even less comforting when you get into the details. You see, it's not just God's judgment is this kind of abstract idea. We get a very full-on picture of God's judgment, verse 9 to 14. Have a look at verse 9 with me. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. God calls out to the nations and says, get ready for a battle. You're not going to need farming gear anymore because none of you are going to be doing that. You are all going to war. And you're going to war against me. It's an unwinnable battle against the Lord Almighty. Now, there's a guy in Western Australia, Leonard Cassley. I think I've got a photo of him. Uh, who in 1970 declared his farm, Hutt River, to be a sovereign state, no longer part of Australia, but now his own micronation within Australia. Uh, he named himself Prince Leonard uh, and gave all the members of his family royal titles. Uh, and in 1977, he declared war on Australia, uh, Prince Leonard and his little farm. Now, he ceased the hostility several days later, but how ridiculous is that picture. I mean, could you imagine Prince Leonard with his farming tools taking on the full might of the Australian Army, Navy and Air Force combined? It'd be, it'd be ridiculous. And it'd be a massacre in one second. 
how much more when the tiny nations of the world come before the Lord Almighty. We see the extreme picture of this outcome in verse 13. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. The harvest is full with the people and evil of the nations. It's, it's a bursting point, ready to be harvested. We get this vivid image of winemakers stomping on grapes where the juice just flows out and their feet are stained red. In the same way, God will tread on his enemies and his feet will be stained with their blood. God says, I will restore the fortunes of my people by gathering the nations for judgment in this way. Hear this word of comfort. Do you feel the comfort? I take it many of us don't. Why is that? What's going on for us that means we're not aligned with God and his word at this point? I think our culture shapes us to think that people aren't that bad that sin isn't that offensive and we don't talk about or really think about the depth of evil that many of us have experienced both here and around the world. See, if we believe those things, then God's judgment is deeply concerning. People aren't that bad. Sin isn't that offensive. Evil isn't widespread. God's judgment is so unfair. But God would challenge us at each of those points, wouldn't he? People are in fact, deeply sinful. Sin is deeply offensive to God. And evil is completely widespread. We get a description of a part of this when we see what's going on for God's people in Joel 3. Have a look at verse 2 again. I'll gather the nations for judgment and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I'll enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because... They have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. The nations have stolen the land that God promised his people. They've taken God's people as slaves and thrown dice to see who would get which slave. And then you get the extremely disturbing image of someone walking through a red light district looking for sex with their slaves in tow behind them. And when they find a brothel, they leave a young boy with the hands of the owner so they can have one night with a prostitute. And then someone else who walks into a bottle shop without their wallet. And so they sell a little girl so they can have some wine. It's horrific, ugly, evil. See, God's judgment isn't over the top, out of proportion, anger at people who are mostly good. He judges evil for what it is. And what we see is a picture of what theologians call God's retributive justice. That is, God deals in retribution. The punishment 
commits the crime. He's always perfectly fair. His judgment is in proportion to what has been done. It's described from verse 4. Have a look at verse 4. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Felicia? Are you paying me back for something? If you're paying me back, I will return your own payment on your own head, swiftly and speedily. Verse 6. You've sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I'll stir them up from the place to which you've sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. God's judgment is completely fair always in proportion. There's one more piece Joel 3 gives us to get our heads into God's good judgment. Uh, Joel 3 shows us that God identifies with his people and his stuff in such a way that committing evil against his people is as if you were committing it against God himself. Let's have a look back at verse 2. I'll enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people, and my heritage, Israel. They've scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. Verse 3, you've cast lots for my people. Verse 5, you've taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. There's a sense in which doing evil to God's people and his staff is doing evil to God himself, which is a great comfort for God's people, isn't it? God knows, he sees everything that happens to you. He cares, he identifies with you. He will not let evil go unpunished. He'll do something about it. It can feel like no one sees, can't it? It can feel like no one cares, like justice won't come. But God will right every wrong. He stands with you. He's for you. It is a great comfort. And this is actually the basis for Jesus' radical teaching. So what does Jesus say about our enemies? He says we're to love them. He says we're to pray for them. How do you do that? It's completely radical. You can only do it when you know and trust and take comfort in the one who doesn't let evil slide, who sees it and judges it so we don't have to. So we can even take the radical call to love our enemies. We might sometimes feel uncomfortable about God's judgment. But if you've ever suffered at the hands of others, or if you know someone who has, you see the comfort. And when you get the truths of Joel 3, you know the comfort. And there's a guy called Miroslav Volf who, who talks about how the only way you can tell a person not to be violent and to actually love your enemies like Jesus is to know and believe that God will judge. Now, mate, I, hopefully it's not too long, but I think it's going to be helpful for us. There we go. Uh, my thesis is that the, the practice of non-violence, right, not doing violence back to other people, requires a belief in divine vengeance. God will judge. 
My thesis will be unpopular with man in the West. But imagine speaking to people, as I have, whose cities and villages have first been, been first plundered, then burned and levelled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. And your point to them, we should not retaliate? Why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocents, the idea will invariably die. Like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. His point, God must judge, and it's very good. Do you find any comfort in God's judgment for you personally? And as you look out at the world, at those who are suffering deep evil at the hands of others, God is trying to grow that in us in Joel 3. God says he'll restore his people by judging all evil done against them. But the thing that makes it even more comforting for us, more incredible, is, of course, we should be on the other side of it. God judges the nations for their evil and sin, but we should read this vivid description of God's judgment and expect it to happen on us. No umbrella. We are full of evil and sin too. We might think we're pretty good, but that's just because we compare ourselves to the person next to us, and the person next to you is full of sin and evil as well. The standard isn't them. The standard is God, the perfect and holy one. No, we are deep sinners fully deserving of God's judgment. That should be our experience. But we've seen in Joel, haven't we, that it's possible to turn and come back to God, that this wouldn't be our experience. It's possible to receive God's spirit and so call on him to be saved. In the rest of the Bible, we see that it's in the gospel, in the cross of Christ who was cursed on a tree, whose blood was poured out and his father's foot stained red with his blood so that our sins would be washed white as snow. Praise God. He's made a way for us to be spared from his judgment and experience salvation. And more than that, that he would care so deeply for us that he would restore us by dealing with all the evil we experience. But if you don't trust Christ, this experience, this expression of God's judgment will be the experience of the final day for you. It sounds incredibly harsh, doesn't it? Why would I say that to you? It's a horrible thing to say to someone. I only tell you these things. God only tells you these things because he loves you. He loves you. It's awful telling someone they've got a disease that might kill them. Why would you tell someone that at the doctor's office? Because you might be able to treat it and fix the problem. 
Now, it's deeply sad that we can't always fix medical problems for people. But you can fix and change your experience of the final day. Come to Christ for forgiveness. And the experience of what that will be like is described in the last bit of chapter 3. The second way God will restore the fortunes of his people, point two, is he will be our refuge. Have a look from verse 16. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. It's talking about the same day as before, but for some, it'll be a completely different experience. It's incredible that the Lord who brings judgment is also the only one who can provide refuge from it. He protects us. But he doesn't only protect us, he also provides abundantly for those who find refuge in him. That's, that's what we see from verse 17. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. See a promise of deep assurance and intimate relationship. We will know that he is our God. He'll dwell in the place where his people are and no strangers will ever pass through it. No one who doesn't belong there, no one who will bring any harm. And then verse 18, we see a picture of abundant blessing and provision. Mountains dripping with wine, hills flowing with milk, streams rolling with water, abundant provision, paradise. And there's this fountain that flows from the house of the Lord, a a picture of something that was in the Garden of Eden that's been restored, life flowing out from God himself. This is what Israel in the Old Testament were waiting for. And they got it to a degree, but nothing like this. The ultimate expression is still to come and is promised for us. In a second, Tamur's going to come up and get him to come down the front. We're going to read Revelation 21 and 22. And uh, this is the ultimate fulfillment of this promise for us. And I just want, as Tamur reads it, I just want you to close your eyes and just picture it. Notice how you feel. Notice the links to Joel 3 and just savour it. I don't think we do that a lot, just savouring God's goodness and his promises. Notice God doesn't tell us to do anything in Joel 3. You look for what God's telling me to do. There's nothing there. I take it we're just to feel the comfort, enjoy the hope, and praise God because of it. And so however you want to do it, I'll have to close my eyes. Somebody's going to come up and read it and just savour it. everyone. So I'll be reading Revelation 21 to chapter 22 verses 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, 
new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for those words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal, it had a great high wall with twelve gates, at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates, and the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the tribes of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and the measured and he measured the city the city with the rod, twelve thousand stadia, its length and width, the height and height are equal. He also measured its wall, a hundred and forty four cubits by human measurement which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agates, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelve amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. 
By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the streets of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Praise God. Our theme of the book of Joel has been the right side of history, question mark. I think it's a great concept. Uh, people use that phrase to say, in 50 years, uh, you're going to look back and realise you were in the right or you were in the wrong in light of where history is going. It's a great concept. I think it's fantastic, but it's used in far too small a way, isn't it? The bigger reality that we all need to live in light of The day that will show who truly stands on the right side is the day of the Lord. We've seen in Joel that the real trajectory of history is that great and terrible day where God will judge all evil and sin. And so to be on the right side of history is not where you stand on some political issue. It's to be on the right side of the one who controls history, who determines what happens when history ends. If you're on the right side, then you'll be vindicated for everyone to see. You'll experience comfort as all wrongs are made right. And you'll experience blessing as God abundantly provides. So take refuge in him and keep going, even when it feels like you are on the wrong side of history. Do you ever feel that sometimes? Should I really be bold in telling my friends of my love for Jesus? It feels pretty weak. Am I really going to keep trusting everything God says? It seems very different to everyone around me. They're telling me I'm on the wrong side of history. Am I? Joel wants to say, no way. And even though no one else sees it now, everyone will see it then. And you'll experience his comfort and his hope, and his joy in his refuge, in the fullness of heaven forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us a glimpse into the end that we might orient ourselves rightly now. We are worthy of sin and judgment from your hand, Yet you give us everything we need that we might turn to you 
and receive every blessing from your hand. Thank you that you love us, that you're gracious and merciful, that you want us to turn back to you and that you want to unleash your blessings upon us. Thank you that you see and you know everything that is going on for us. And in this world that is full of evil, you will not let it go unpunished. We pray we would rest in your comfort. We pray we would hope in your promises. And we pray we might remain in your refuge. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.